So welcome, everybody. Welcome back to the Commercial Real Estate Library podcast. I'm Dama Tamanawala. You know my co-host, Garrett McGilvery. And joining us today is the founder of Aspen Properties, Scott Hutchison. Scott, thanks for being here. Thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. Fantastic. <clears throat> um, so on your website, there is a lot of information. My favorite thing is just right right on the front page. We started in 1998 borrowing a boardroom from a friend. Today, we proudly own and manage 4.25 million square feet of office in Calgary and Edmonton downtown. That's, uh, that's, that's quite the story there. Can you, would you mind sharing a little bit about your story, Scott, of, uh, of how you guys got started? Sure. Well, um, I started my career on Wall Street. I worked for Goldman Sachs uh, in New York and San Francisco, and I was consistently looking out the window, staring at big office buildings and beautiful architecture in New York, wondering why I had to stay up all night as a financial analyst, (laughs) adding value in one tranche of the of the production of a finance deal. And and I think Goldman kind of considered me as average or maybe even below average as an investment banker. So we we agreed that after my two-year financial analyst term that um, I probably wasn't coming back to Goldman. <laughs> and lo- nothing against Goldman, or just well, I wasn't as good as I should have been at loving what I was doing. And But I, I realized in New York City that all these giant pieces of granite were beautiful. And I wondered and pondered how they how they made sense financially and how they worked. So um, my brother initially went to grad school in New York City at Columbia to study real estate development, and I followed behind him one year later, um, finishing my term at Goldman and going to Columbia for a master's in real estate development. And that program um, really focuses on how do you build a business in the real estate development world, not how do you operate REITs, but you know how do you develop product and so and and I come from an entrepreneurial background so and I am that by nature so um, an opportunity I worked in I worked for Yale University Endowment Fund for some years and is and that, then I is got that an, David Swenson yeah it was David Swenson yeah the goat okay yeah very cool yeah well you know what I I, um, I say I worked for him he invested in us so I wasn't. I wasn't part of Yale, Yale University Endowment Fund. He invested in an enti- Canadian entity that I was running some properties for us. So got it. I, I got to know David in the olden days. Haven't stayed in touch with him. Uh, so you know, I was very lucky to, to have some really good people in the business that that um, that talked about you know how to how to do things right and some really bad people in the business that talked about how to do things right and I knew they were doing them wrong. And uh, and that's how you learn, right? I think I learned as much from the guys that I didn't respect as the guys I really respected. And and I, I got an opportunity in '98. There was somebody that was looking for um, a CEO, and I was like 37, 38 years old, and and um, and they wanted to do a startup in Calgary. I was living in Florida, lived in the U.S. for a bunch of years, and I thought. I thought it's time to come back to Canada and and I have an opportunity to do a startup with a public company that wants to throw some capital at a new startup. And so uh, 
we borrowed a friend's boardroom and I had a cell phone and for the first, I don't know, five months, I worked out of his boardroom and he generously allowed me to do that and use his printer and his coffee machine and, and, um, and not pay for the paper coming out of the printer. And, and, uh, what a, what a, uh, a beautiful day that was for me. I Who? thought we'd go public right away because 98, so many Canadian small caps went public and or 97. And the day I came across the border to Canada to move home to my country or Western Canada, um, at least, uh, the equity markets disappeared. And I went, oh, now yeah. what am I going to do? I only have a little bit of capital. But, you, you know, you figure it out. You put one foot in front of the other and and um, you look for those opportunities when other people are zigging, you zag, and and you find a way to to uh, be contrarian at times and and uh, follow your gut. And so here we are, 25 years later, with 1.2 billion dollars of assets, um, institutional capital, and some partners that um, uh, we've had a lot of fun with along the way. Very specialized at what we do. We own only office and only in Calgary and Edmonton, and um, uh, and then a Calgary Tower. We own that as well, so that's not office, but very specialized to what we do. How, how do you think, like, just on that, thank you for the background, Scott, um, and I really want to get into some of the market stuff that we're seeing the, the present in a moment, but um, just on that note, on your specialty, like, how do you... How do you make that decision to stay in the in the narrow vertical? Because I know some people would do the opposite and they go all over the place. It, are you then like more investable from a like a capital perspective? It, like, how does what's the logic behind that? You have to be. You have to know that you're not as smart as some others, so you only get really good at a narrow field. Right. And you and you recognize you're only good at a narrow field, and you're not. You don't have the capacity to do everything really well, and you have to define what market you want to be in. And and so for me, um, I've been criticized many times for not being better diversified in product class or regional development. And all that criticism is appropriate when things go up and down, especially when they go down. You you know you you look stupider than you are, and and then when things go up. You look smarter than you are, right. and um, and so it's a it's 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 a decision that I made with my partners twenty three years ago. We we did a hostile takeover on a public company out of Winnipeg, and we had assets in like ten provinces and territories, and we had everything but spec churches in our portfolio, and we had to reposition that portfolio, and we sold everything off in like Kitchener Waterloo, the farmer's market in, 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 uh, you know, the Mennonite farmer's market, we owned that for a while. So I really mean we had a varied product base that was compiled through a, a Winnipeg public company and we sold off, you know, farmer's markets to residential buildings, to industrial all over the country and refocused that, that capital into, Calgary and, and Edmonton office um, at a really good time, and um, and so we we made a ton of good decisions at that time. Since 2014, we don't look very smart. 
you know, the, <laughs> the, the oil business fell off in 2014. And there's lots of people that are probably saying, oh, those guys are stupid. Um, right. But, they predicted COVID, too. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> but we did sell a billion dollars of assets in 08 at the peak of this market. And uh, so we looked really, really smart then. And I'm never going to be that smart, and I'm not as stupid as I look. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so, so I guess Scott, how did you like bring it back to when you you first did your first acquisition? How did that come into play? So, my prior career was, as I mentioned, finance, Goldman, and then I did some res with. Yale University Endowment Funds investment in an entity, a Canadian entity called Signature Properties. And it was res and golf course communities, um, virtually, you know, in five or six Sunbelt states. And so I got okay at that. As a young guy, they moved me to those properties and I I got to run those, those project deals initially. Um, I got to do the acquisitions and eventually I got into the field. And when we started Aspen, I didn't know a lot about office. I wanted to be in that area, but uh, my first acquisitions, I was guessing a lot. (laughs) I was 37 years old and somebody gave me a CEO role to go start up a business in a country that I came from, but I hadn't lived in for 20 years or 15 years in a product class that I'd never been in. And so um, the, the frank, the frank truth is that you, you you start studying and listening and talking to brokers and agents and finance people and mortgage brokers and and uh, your lawyer and, and 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 you keep asking stupid questions of smart people and you get smarter every day. And the first acquisition we vended in a couple assets for shares into a private company, and then really the big move was that we got a. We had a small, we had an investor, a really wealthy woman investor from Yahoo, employee number 30, that oh, invested wow. some money. She was really young and very wealthy, and she invested some money in our private company, a personal relationship with the guy that helped me found this thing. And um, and we did a hostile takeover of consolidated properties, which was more down my my real knowledge base because it was investment banking as opposed to office buildings. Can you, sorry, Scott, do you mind breaking down how hostile takeover works? Sure. So you, you approach a public company and you say, we think you're doing, you're, you're not managing your assets in the public markets the way they could be. Right. And we think your shares are undervalued and we'd suggest you do the following things. And usually management says, buzz off. You know, you don't own a piece of us or you don't own enough of us. You don't know anything. We know how to run our business. Right. So then you then you take a position in their company and you sneak up to a certain number by quietly acquiring shares with the help of CIBC or RBC. And they broker the deals for you. They go into the market and they, they have you. And so once you get to about 9.9% in Canada, you have to phone management up and say, I'm about to go over 10%. And once I go over 10%, I have to publicly announce that. And I'd like a couple board seats. 
And they usually say, as they did in this case, buzz off, get out of our life. You don't know anything. Do you, and by then, the way, do you, are you literally making that call? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Be yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's very fun. It's like throwing a hand grenade into a small boardroom <laughs> and watching it, watching it go off and seeing these bloody faces tell you to buzz off. <laughs> right. And, and then eventually you do it. You have to do a follow up bid at a certain number. I've forgotten what number that is in Canada. I think it's I think it's 20 percent. You have to actually now do an offer for the company if you go over 20 percent. So we snuck up to just under the border after you've announced of what we could do. But I only had a, enough money to get to 35 percent of the publicly traded shares outstanding, which isn't a full follow up bid. But you can you can ask for a you can ask for exceptions. And um, so I eventually went in front of the Toronto Stock Exchange commissioners with a trying to knock and I knocked the poison pill out. A poison pill says that if you go past a certain number, we're going to dilute everybody's shares and issue a whole bunch of new classes of share. And now you go from 30% to 20 or 12 or 10% and you lose. Yeah. So if if you've given the company enough time to respond properly and enough time to to work with you the poison pill can get knocked out by a court or by the 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 Toronto Stock Exchange and i'd spent a year courting this company acquiring shares spent my career on that for a year rather than buying real estate because i figured i could go public at the same time by taking it taking that company over and get an equity lift. And so we knocked out the poison pill, which means that they weren't allowed to dilute us. And and they had to allow us to buy the position we wanted. So we did a tender offer. It's called a Dutch tender offer with a bunch of shares and 31% of the money. And once I got 31%, I got two board seats. And then I vended in my assets into the company to get to 52%. And then I had control of the public company and then i raised some money to take the public company completely private and that took about two years of uh corporate finance kind of work instead of real estate work but now i had a portfolio of another i don't know this is a long time ago 20 years ago another 80 million dollars of assets wow and uh but i sat down with my partner who my partner now a really smart young guy that joined me long 20 years ago now my partner and i said let's sit let's spend this weekend evaluating the 52 assets in that portfolio including things like farmers markets and right and uh-huh. north did stuff in yellow knife we own stuff in yellow knife right retail and and condos in yellow knife and um and let's evaluate our keepers and our losers and what we're going to sell and a middle so maybe a three pots you know, keepers sell right away, fixers make them better. And we sat down in my living room that weekend because my wife was away. And so we decided rather than go to the office. And he looked at me, he goes, There's only one pot. We got to sell everything. And most of it needs to be fixed. Oh my God. <laughs> we don't have a keeper. And I go, well, I, I thought this had a lot of equity. I don't think so. So it was, oh, it, no. it's, you know, when you build a career over, decades there's some great stuff that you went through because you were so 
driven and young and anxious and ambitious, but not smart enough or calm enough or cerebral enough, or you hadn't learned the fundamentals well enough. But you do then. That's that's how a little company like mine grows. That is wild. Do you? Okay, nat- natural question, just based on where we're at today. With, with your finance background, do you see any companies today that could be ripe for a hostile takeover? That's a big question, but. Well, I think, I think it's half the market. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> I, I, think it's, I, th- I think it's half the REIT market right now. They've been absolutely clobbered. Right. And, and um, they can't raise equity or they refuse to. And the debt markets are very selective today and getting tighter. Mm-hmm. The office business in particular is getting overcorrected because of all the fundamentals related to work from home, et cetera. And um, I, I think there's opportunities throughout the board to uh, take a position, either invest or take a position that's that's um, that's bigger than that. You know, take a big position right. in in these guys, and maybe it'll be friendly, maybe it'll be hostile. Hostile is more fun. It sounds a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's very cool. Um, okay, can we now? A lot of people listen to this podcast, Scott, um, and I, I and they want to hear about today and how to sure. plan their business and where they should go. It's a big jump. Um, sure. But can you share a little bit about, uh, you know, what's happening in the Calgary and Edmonton office market and kind of how is it evolving? Because we got good things in what's happening to Alberta. I, you know, mm-hmm. if you listen to the premier talk, it sounds like a haven. You wouldn't even know there's anything going wrong at all. Right. Um, right. But, of course. He's yeah, up for election. Uh, yes, right. Um <laughs> But could you share a little bit about how maybe the office market has evolved in those markets? I know they're distinct, but. Sure. The province has had huge net migration, and it's primarily driven on the view that you can get a job here and pay for your rent. Yeah. And, you know, I'm chair of Invest Alberta Corp. Um, Premier Kenny asked me and a board to set up an entity called Invest Alberta Corp. And it's basically the economic development arm for the province to go get businesses and bring them to the province. Ontario has one. They started up shortly after Alberta. Quebec's had one for 40 years. They Mm. needed it more than the rest of the province did. I don't mean that in a disparaging way. You know, as they went through their turmoil in the 70s, they created an economic development arm for the province years ago. And and, um, they've got a huge budget, uh, 10 times what we have in this province. But what what I've seen as chair of that organization, um, businesses like RBC are coming here, expanding or moving employees, PwC, and that's all public. It's we help yep. them do it with Invest Alberta, PwC, Deloitte as well. Um, we're seeing that that really, um, you know, we companies like uh, De Havilland moved from Ontario to Ontario to Alberta. So what we're seeing is that our cost of living, quality of life, wages and taxes drive this province growth. So today it's not the oil business that's driving the growth. It's it's new entities coming to this this part of the world because it's a favorable living environment. 
and you're not living on your mom's and dad's basement couch, you know, as long when you start your career here because housing is affordable. Yeah. So that's really what's driving the economy today. Um, As we as we look at forecasts, we we should lead the country in GDP growth uh, in the next year or two. And um, and net migration is we've led the country in that this year. So so that is all settling in. But <clears throat> let me say, you know, just to, if we migrate into the office business specifically, as you asked, um, the office business is going to be challenged for mm-hmm. a number of years. Uh, when I when I think about retail, online retail sales are fourteen percent of total retail sales. That's the stat. I keep checking to see whether I'm still right. It might be 15 it's today. Surprising. I would have thought it would be higher. Totally. But but people are buying their cars online, and they are buying their you know a lot of right. consumer products. They you know I'm not sure if housing's in there, but but probably not. But 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 I know the stat says between 13 and 14 percent, and I've hmm. checked that a few times. And if I'm really wrong, um, somebody should tell me. But <laughs> but I checked it with somebody really smart last night because I I, I heard it on I, I checked it with uh, uh, with RealPack yesterday because they had, they had uh, uh, presented that number with a couple of retail guys. So if right. that's true, let's call it twenty percent just for the moment. Let's right. say I'm wrong by fifty percent, and online sales are twenty percent of total retail sales. Look what's happened to the retail business. Well, office is going to lose one to two days of occupants a week on average some companies are saying no and some companies are saying i'm not you don't have to come back to work but everybody virtually is saying you can you can at least work from home a day well that's 20 percent of the office occupancy yeah if you take one day out of five so are we are we going to get penalized now that doesn't make that office space shrink by 20 percent but it's a real issue to rework in the office world. So the thesis that we have at, at, at Aspen is, I'm not competing against Brookfield or Oxford. I'm competing against your home in Muskoka. I'm right. competing against your home in Collingwood. I'm competing against Albertans homes in Canmore or Banff or wherever they spend, or Fernie or wherever they spend their weekends. I'm not competing against other office product. I have to make office cool enough that you want to come to your office. And that means you have to have amenities like crazy. We've got two buildings in, in Calgary that that are generally considered the two coolest office buildings in the country. Yeah, I was Go looking ahead. at them and I, I think I saw a, a simulator, a golf simulator. I was asking our office leasing guys who rented this Collier space here, why don't, why don't we have a simulator? Right. <laughs> so. Well, you can't afford it within your space, but you can tell your darn landlord I want golf simulators in my office building, right? And I and I want to pay for it with all the other tenants, and then I want to be able to book it online, and I want to be able to use it as often as I want because I'm a cool tenant. And so, in every building we have, we have like in this in the ampersand, the building we're in today. If you Google that, there's a basketball court in the main lobby. You wow. come into the main lobby, we got a basketball court sitting there. That's and, unreal. We got 56,000 square feet of amenities at the ampersand. We're building out. We have one golf simulator. It gets used to so much that we need to build four. 
So we're putting four in this building now. It's very interesting because it's not, it's like a big part of it is companies want their employees to come in too. So, and they can't attract, they can't yell at them and say, you have to be in here. They can't mandate it. So they want to be in a space that actually attracts people into the workplace. Right. Right. That's right. So we got people coming in to use the golf simulator on Saturday and Sunday, and then they'll stroll up to their office. But I don't think they were coming to their office on Saturday or Sunday because I see how heavily my golf simulators are used on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> right, right. So, uh-huh. so that's what an employer base like. We, you know, we we did. We've got fifty-five thousand square feet of amenities in this building in the ampersand where I'm sitting right now. And if you go on, if you go online, it's the coolest looking lobby you've seen in Canada for sure. Uh, nobody's okay. argued with me on that. You know, oh. golf golf simulators, but we've got. We've got our fitness facility is better than the Glencoe Club's locker room, better than the Granite Club's locker room. Like it's, you know, the the the, the beautiful lockers and 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 if we make our building, office building cooler than your house in 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 Collingwood on the weekends or or Muskoka on the weekends in the summer, then then employers want to be here. And and it's not just employers of, you know, techie kind of employment base. We did two large accounting firms last year in the ampersand. One of those is MNP. I mean, those guys aren't boring. They're the same as you and I. They want cool shit. I, you just reminded me I still need to get back to my accountant. Um, so, I, so can we talk about, Scott, I, a, a little bit of market, maybe like – projections or, or, or something because I, I just want to I just want to get into it a little bit like I was looking at I don't know where I put the Collier's uh, office report for Calgary and right now but I, I think we're at 30 percent vacancy or something like that 13 yep. million square feet um, yep. you know Calgary has this office to residential program where they're saying by 2031 I think they want to reduce the office space by you know six or seven million square feet um, now they've already put I think 788,000 square feet of office through that program and they have a bunch of different phases going through it um, so that will decrease the in the, the vacancy rate there and and like decrease that supply um, but I guess you know one of the guys in my office sector here was was asking, in Toronto, for a long time, we had longer term five and 10 year leases. And then during COVID, it switched to, well, we're just going to do a one year extension, maybe yeah. a three year. Like, And now I think they've started to turn the corner and get back to those five year leases a little bit. Have you started to see some tenants you know, expressing a little bit more commitment and optimism? No, I would say on average, the, the deals we're doing are shorter term than we historically have done. And I, I think that's in part because, because the pushback of the employee base to work from home has scared long-term commitments for most bigger organizations. The bigger the organization, the shorter term, the less resolved they are on the employee base. So the entrepreneurial, the small, the four or 5,000 square foot tenant, they're okay with committing because they went back to work right away. And the small, the smaller the organization, the tighter the culture, the more they've told their employees, you got to come back to work. 
The bigger the organization, the less power they have over their employee base, the, the, I think the lesser their culture and they, they haven't been able, federal government can't get their employees to come back to work. As you get down to a smaller employment base, if the employer knows his employees well enough and he or she's saying, you're coming to work. And yeah, right. I'll give you one or two days off, but we lose our culture if you're not here. So those guys know their culture and know how to commit, but the bigger the tenant, the less they're able to commit to that. Interesting. Do you think some of this recession that we're wading through or wading into, will that push more people into the office? Like, I don't understand in in my office, even especially on like a, a not in the middle of the week, like how are people, you should want to be in here, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. Collier's I don't think is laying off too many folks, but like everybody else is right now. Right. And isn't this right. the opportunity where you want to have FaceTime with your employer and really be in there listening to mentors and everything like that? Out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. Fair enough. You're gone. You're gone. You're the first people to go will be the right. people that have been less familiar with their boss. Right. And, and it's and and I as much as I like you two, I'd like you a lot more if I were in the room with you. Yeah, you know? yeah, no kidding. It's just what we do. It's chemistry. It's body language. It's the excitement, the energy. That you know, if you're out of the room, you're out of the deal. Yeah. And 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 we know that intuitively. I've got a son in tech. He's a software developer, and they don't go to the office. It's driving him crazy. And he's very young, like he's in his first few years of employment. And and he goes, Dad, I, I can't learn the same way from Joe, who I work for, or Joseph, that I work for, because, you know, like he's disconnected or the screen doesn't do it for me. And I can't I can't watch the CEO's body language anymore. Right. So so the, uh, to your point, and you said it, you know, don't you want to be in the office? Yeah, I think you do. Um, and, and, but, but here, okay, I'm going to put this scenario out there for you that, that scares me the most about this work from home. I'm, I seem like an extrovert today and I probably am pretty close to one, but I was an introvert early in my career. I was nervous. Mm -hmm. I didn't know much about my business. I didn't know how to act, you know, and then you're scared and you're introverted and you don't know in the early days, can I ask? you know, Garrett, a stupid question. And the answer was, no, I didn't. I was afraid to. I thought I might get penalized for that. So if somebody had given me the option to stay in my jeans and stay home and not have to dress up, not have to buy a suit, not have to go in and and see Garrett face to face and not have to be on time at five to nine instead of five after nine and not have to brush my teeth and not have to drive pay parking or transit or whatever, and do the transit time. If somebody had given me that option, I would have chosen to stay at home and develop my career at half the pace. Right. So that's the, that. That's it's scary. not the extrovert. It's the introvert that I'm really worried about because we can't, we can't force them to come to work. They're going to pick jobs that are at home. And one of the best articles I read on this, on that particular issue leading to some of the mental health issues is, the amount of movement we do when we go to the office versus when we don't. And it, it's brushing your teeth, it's shaving, it's getting dressed, it's getting in the car, it's getting to the office, it's walking the stairs, it's getting up to your office, it's walking to the bathroom. It's And that interaction stimulation, even driving your car or taking transit, and that movement that we make 
is significantly more than the movement that we made during COVID when we made it to our home offices and did our stuff. Right. And that's really unhealthy for the body as well. So there's some things here that I worry about, especially for the introvert that will choose to stay an introvert for their career. Well, it would it would be great if uh, I almost feel like the mental health thing is a champion for work from home, you know, with mental health breaks and all this stuff. Like it would be great for the office to rebrand as, no, this is great for mental health. You got to, you know, you or maybe that with people. Yeah, well, get out of your home. I think any any doctor will tell you isolation is bad for mental health. Right. Any doctor will tell you that. I don't know. I've never heard anything to the contrary of that. We are social beings. The yeah. the way to stay healthiest is get exercise and movement, and walk and talk, and stimulate and social interaction. That right. that's how you stay healthy mentally and physically. So, so, okay. So, but, so here we are in this, um, you know, it, it looks like a challenging kind of, uh, outlay of the next couple of years. Like, do you see, um, the Calgary Edmonton office market kind of climbing back as a result of, you know, maybe some of these, uh, MNPs and tech companies and AI research, you know, emergence and these big companies just finding Alberta as a home, like, is there a long-term uh, happy outlook? Yeah, I think I think that the, the the cost of housing, the significantly lower taxes, the quality of life that this province offers will will be our competitive advantage over time. And I see that every day in my role at Invest Alberta Corp as chair. Um, but 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 let me say this: uh, when you have thirty percent vacancy, that's structural. Yeah, and. And so the the numbers that you've read and you you quoted back, Dema, are 100% true. Like it's 800,000 square feet today, but we'll be 2 million square feet that the city will sponsor at the $75 a square foot conversion of office to res in a year. That's and wild. We'll be at 6 to 7 million square feet within three. That's my prediction. So that's, that's you know, 8% of the market or whatever that is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, it's 8% of the, of the downtown office and, and it's taking the crappy inventory out of the, the, out of the downtown. We're doing one with one of our buildings for like 400,000 square feet. Oh and, yeah. Okay. And it's really exciting to me because we get to do something new. Like, I don't know anything about doing it. So that yeah. makes me really excited. We'll make some <laughs> mistakes, but we'll, we'll get there and then, it, then it'll become a new business for us. Yeah. And it's it's cool because it also puts it implants all these new uh, 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 people in the mm -hmm. core, right? So then, mm -hmm. where do they want to work? Probably somewhere in the core. Yeah. Well, it does three things. It takes a really low tax base because the office building's functionally obsolete, so it's basically empty. You know, right. some of the some of these office buildings are eighty percent vacant, right. and so it, you you move those tenants out. You, and that that office building is paying no no tax to the city, so now the city gives you an incentive. They have a break even of you know like seven years, by doing this, and now you're paying real taxes because you have in the residential tower that goes back to the city, which reimburses them for their incentive program, and now you have 24 hour life because you got residents in the downtown 
and before you only had you know business hour life right now you've got other things spawning like grocery stores and hopefully more education in schools and the diversified product that brings uh what big urban healthy cities have that calgary's never had which is better 24-hour life but the economics work on it too and it pushes out some of the homeless issues because um, a downtown rots from the from the core out, just like an apple does. And if you keep that healthy, it 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 creates a place of vibrancy. And so it it, it accomplishes so many great things all in the same program. Now I think we could do an entire podcast on office to residential conversion. Uh, <laughs> call it uh, boardrooms to bedrooms. You know. Um, yeah. Good. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> and because it, it's very complex and uh, there's so much that goes into it. Um, but I, I want to just maybe one thing I want would like to touch on, like we've seen this company, I think Group Mock, they're called buying all sorts of office towers in Montreal. Um, mm-hmm. I think maybe they're potentially even looking here in Toronto. Can you, can you, uh, uh, you know, steel man the case for the bulls, the office bulls, and not even necessarily uh, exclusive to Calgary, Edmonton, but just, you know, why somebody would want to go out and really get into this asset class today. So I cannot give you that argument for all office. Okay. But I can give you that argument for appealing office. So our thesis is that you have to steal market share. And and because there won't be, there, there's too much to go around with the, the current trends. So if you're buying it, there's winners and losers, right? In every single discussion we could have, we can talk about winners and losers. The losers will be the functionally obsolete office buildings that don't convert to res or don't create some vibe about them that make me want to be there. If you don't have fitness in a 140,000 square foot building that looks like a Brookfield building on a small scale, you're toast. So I can't make an argument for that office building to do well in the future. But what I can say is when, like the ampersand with 1.1 million square feet and 56,000 square feet of amenities, it steals market share. And that is the, the product that we look to get, not small buildings necessarily, but bigger buildings that can be really cool. So I can't make the, the 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 argument in Toronto that something in you know in in between Midtown and 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 North York that isn't creative is going to work. It won't. It's going to die. And if it's not on the subway, it's going to die. So there's winners and losers, and we have to, as an industry, recreate the way we look at office and how cool it is. One of the one of the big names in our business built a huge building. Uh, you know, a million square feet a few years ago. It's beautiful and shiny, and it looks like it could be in in Washington or Manhattan or Toronto or wherever else. And they didn't put fitness in it. It's half empty. And it's a million square feet. Like, I just, okay, so no, I can't make an argument for all office. And I don't know what Group Mock will do with their office, but if they can make it amenity rich and really cool, then they steal market share, and now we've got a program. Just touching a bit on the office market, because there was an article that talked about how you guys um, leased out some of your space to a, a vertical farming startup. Um, do you see any 
other new entrant type of alternative tenants coming down the line within like next 10, 15 years? Like obviously vertical farming being one of those type of things that could pop up in the middle of a city for, for, you know, a vacant space type of thing. Is there anything else that you can see coming down the pipeline? Well, agri-science and carbon science. So how, I don't have, I don't have this view that we're coming off oil and gas, you know, for 30 years. Mm-hmm. But I do have this view that we won't have to because the the carbon science will get completely changed. We'll have carbon capture. We'll have new science on how to burn our carbons, and in particular, natural gas and 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 you know other other byproducts of of the hydrocarbon business. Um, so that to me is the future. It's not it's not shutting in our oil wells and our natural gas. It's how do we do it better and smarter and with less destruction to the to to the universe through carbon release, and so that's where if Canada has a future, we don't we don't shut down the business, we make it better, and we don't disincent transporting our product to the rest of the world when the rest of the world's creating, you know, when China's producing uh, energy by by burning coal and they're making coal fire plants today. The way you solve the world's problem is you take Canada's natural gas and you liquefy it and you put it in China, and that's how you actually help the pro- help the the globe. You don't create little ecosystems and say, well, this little ecosystem is going to be environmentally net zero, when China is destroying the world with 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 carbon in okay. in the form of coal. So we have to get good at deciding. How do you get really, really good carbon capture, carbon uh, science? So I think the future of the next 20 years is carbon science and, and, and certainly, you know, safe, safe food production science. So, and if we've learned anything by Russia's recent behavior, we've learned that we, that we in the West should be providing more safety, more carbon more energy and more food to the rest of the globe because it's democratic it's ethical and it's appropriate to do it i love it um i think i think that is a a great place to end it uh, because i think we could talk for hours and hours um but i will ask you one question that uh, garrett and I, i like to ask a lot of guests which is if you have let's say two million bucks equity um where I have would you, that. you have okay perfect where <laughs> would you put it today um you can buy any asset class anywhere in canada yeah so i don't know much about anything so i invest in what i know that's real estate so and, i meant by asset class i meant like industrial sorry i'm only real estate so i'm thinking yeah only, okay yeah. so you agree you agree yes yes, yes. yes. yeah okay well um, my my recommendation to everyone is to invest in where you have passion within the sector, and what you and what and where you know the most. So there are opportunities in retail that will be fantastic because everybody's afraid of it, and there'll be opportunities in office, as I've stated on the call, that'll mm-hmm. steal market share, and there are opportunities in industrial that industrial you know has got lots of opportunities because it's a lot of local guys can make a lot of money. So follow your nose where your heart says it's right and follow your, your, your energy where you've been educated. 
And so that that means go find the asset class you love and that you understand and you'll make money in it. But don't go where you don't know and don't go where you don't have passion. So I got passion for office and I got passion for Alberta. And I think I can beat the big institutional players every single day in my market because I live, breathe and sleep it here. And they're 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 spreading themselves all over the globe. I can beat those guys. I know it. I, I, I prove it every day on our returns by having passion in my own little backyard with my own narrow focus and understanding my market better than most. Well, Scott, thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Everybody's going to get yeah, a lot of this you, conversation. Scott. Well, it's tons of fun. Thank you for including me in your podcast and your energy and your thoughts.